This is the Seafair Investor Podcast, bringing you the tides of investing and personal finance from to millennial seafarers and alike. I'm your host, Soshin, a full-time seafarer, value investor, and a personal finance enthusiast. Welcome to episode 20. Today, I will have another guest with me on the episode, and you might notice now that I am in an interview spree of guests being in my podcast. The reason being is that I am maximizing as much time I have while still here on land and not working at sea, because doing interviews in the middle of the sea is not really good in terms of internet stability. Anyway, my guest today is from an investing YouTube channel named Investing with Tom, and his name is just Tom. <laughs> the talk I had with him was really interesting, and the reason I got him to the show, notwithstanding his valuable insights into investing also, is that his experience with meeting the super investor Guy Spear and his trip to the recent Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting in Omaha last May. Now, without further ado, let's go to my conversation with Investing with Tom. Investing with Tom, welcome to the Seafair Investor Podcast. It's really nice to have you in my show, and I'm kind of really Thank you for accepting this interview so fast in the email. I was kind of shocked at first, like after 10 minutes, you, you replied. It was, I did not expect it. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate the invite. For, for people listening, this is actually our second attempt. My internet was terrible the first time around, but hopefully it's much better today. <laughs> so um, yeah, this, this, this should be. Yeah, it's, it's going much better now. So still fingers crossed <laughs> until the end. <laughs> so to, to start with, you know, can you, do a quick introduction of yourself first and you know also how you started investing for my listeners because uh, I myself I, I know you I watch your YouTube videos for some time now so yeah maybe we can start with that yeah appreciate that um yeah so my name's Tom I uh, run the investing with Tom YouTube channel and podcast have done for I think the podcast uh, the the YouTube channel now is um, coming up four years old. I think I've been running that for a little while. The last few years has kind of blown past, but um, yeah, I mean, I started investing probably only about five years ago, something like that. I, I was basically a few months out of university, working my first job, um, had a bit of a student loan, and you know, was trying to uh, get out of negative net worth territory and build something up, and had kind of a few few thousand dollars saved up. And um, in in New Zealand, where I'm based, we have quite a big sort of real estate investing community. That's like the main vehicle that most people use for investment. Um, there, we we do have a New Zealand stock exchange. We have a stock market, but um, it's pretty small. I think there's something like 150 companies listed um, in New Zealand, and um, the yeah, we have a sort of stock market investing community, but it's very small. So um, I didn't have enough money to get started in real estate at the time. Um, eventually, found the world of um, investing in businesses through through public markets, and that led me down the value investing, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, rabbit hole that I'm sure lots of people listening have, have kind of been down. And um, like I say, the community in that space is very small in New Zealand. So I found myself getting really interested in this stuff and no one around me particularly cared about it. So I sort of uh, went to the internet basically and started a YouTube channel talking all about it and um, have built up a cool kind of community there. So um, it's been been really rewarding, but that that's that's how I got started. I may just ask, like, what was the first investing book that you read, you know, when you were, you were starting? Yeah. I mean, what made you, you know, really get into, you know, value investing? Yeah, I mean, uh, all of the people that I know in my personal life that are, are quite well off, um, a lot of them have invested in real estate. Um, I work in the agriculture industry, so I know um, a few people that have basically been farmers for a long time and built their wealth through that um, kind of through that avenue. So when I stumbled across um, Buffett and value investing, and he was talking about 
you know, buying uh, assets that generate cash and paying a reasonable price and doing it in a relatively concentrated way. That sort of made a lot of sense to me. So I had seen... um, I had seen that style of investing talked about just in videos and YouTube and stuff. And that led me to uh, initially just read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, (laughs) which is um, kind of a very basic way of getting started in personal finance. And then from there, I kind of just leapt straight to The Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham, which in hindsight was probably a mistake because it's pretty dry. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty a technical book. I mean, it's, I I don't, I, I kind of don't recommend that also for beginners. It's like, if you if if there's one book that you want for beginners to not start yeah. investing, it's, give them the intelligent exactly. investor. It's it's a pretty hard book. Yeah, but uh, I mean, I, I persevered through it. I should probably go and go back and read it again. That that's the only time I've ever read the intelligent investor. I'm sure I'd understand much more now. But um, that's kind of where I started. Um, a few things in there, you know, did make a lot of sense to me around margin of safety and Mister Market and so on. But um, there still was. Um, I still don't know that I had a particularly strong framework after reading that. Um, at, at a certain point, I stumbled across, somehow stumbled across Phil Town and his books um, were a lot better, I would say, for just someone getting started. He was the first person that I saw uh, kind of took the Buffett, Berkshire, you know, Charlie Munger type strategy uh, and just laid it out in relatively um simple and kind of easy to follow steps and you know you do sort of graduate over time from that approach there's parts of it that are probably a little oversimplified but um that was very useful for me getting started um kind of reading reading rule one payback time and um i think invested the the book he wrote with his daughter danielle um those were really good places for for me to learn the learn the ropes I mean, it's kind of interesting, like how every person, you know, start with value investing. It's always, you know, knowing Buffett in some kind of books, mm-hmm. and then it's just like a rabbit hole from there on. It's 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 it kind is. of amazing, actually. Yeah. Now, can you, you know, can you talk more about your investing checklist that I found really interesting in your YouTube channel? I mean, it's maybe it's one of the videos that really, you know, dug me into, you know, how how to. Um, approach investing itself but maybe you can walk us through the the thought process you put into making this checklist yeah sure so the um yeah the the investment checklist is something i go through as kind of a final step before i make an investment um essentially it's an idea that i took from monish for brian guy spear they are both um, heavy users of investment checklists and as far as I know, um, Monish Pabrai hasn't ever actually shared his investment checklist. He sort of says checklists are very useful, but they're also very personal. And I guess the things that you might miss or make mistakes on or forget to research or whatever will vary from person to person. So uh, essentially that checklist is just really designed to pick up dumb mistakes that um, either I know I've made in the past or um you know, one of the great investors who I follow has made in the past, you know, there's a, uh, I think it's a Pabri saying, I might be wrong on this, but he basically says, um, it's cheaper to learn from other people's mistakes than to have to make them yourself. Admittedly, um, <laughs> when you make them yourself, they, they <laughs> tend to stick with you a little more, but that's basically what the checklist is about. And um, yeah, it's just kind of making sure that I don't make, make stupid errors. So there's things on the checklist for me, like, um, you know, what does the management compensation package look like and is it aligned with investors? So, you know, if I'd been in the weeds studying the actual business model, maybe that's something I wouldn't have dug into. So that's just a reminder to kind of look into that. Uh, Another one that's caught me out in the past is, you know, I might get excited about this new company and, um, you know, I think the (laughs) odds are good of, you know, a good return with limited downside. Um, But then I have an item on the checklist that says, would I rather actually just own more of an existing investment that I I know better? Um, Because I think I've probably diversified, as Peter Lynch might call it, a couple of times in the past. So Mm -hmm. um, the checklist is expanding. I think there's 20 or 30 items on there now. It's a pretty quick kind of process to work through unless, like I say, there's something I've just forgotten to look at and I need to go back and do some research. But it's already kind of stopped me from, um, making a couple of investments or, or at least, um, you know, made sure that I, I guess, um, dotted the I's and crossed the T's on a few things um, before I put that money to work. So uh, they they can definitely be be very useful. May I ask, like, how did, you know, of course, we're 
uh, investing is like a lifelong, you know, journey of learning and such. And did your checklist kind of evolve now compared to a year ago where you publish it in your YouTube channel? Like, what are the things that has changed now? Because given the current market environment, it's like everything is going down. So how how has, um, how did it kind of evolve? Yeah, the checklist is still relatively new. Like like you say, it's, a, it's probably about a year old at this point. Um, it started by me taking um, checklist items from various people, you know, that I'd seen share you know specific points like i just shared a couple earlier um that's kind of how i got started and then i looked at errors i'd made in the past and i'd um kind of add those to the checklist as well and over time i've added i've probably added three or four points or something in in the last year but by and large the checklist is um hasn't changed a huge amount i would say but it'll be ever evolving i'm sure at some point it'll be like monish's and it's 150 points long or something but um that that might be a few years down the track yeah okay um is there like a part of your checklist that you know makes that is for you um gives you more time or 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 the hardest for you to process the hardest for me to process. Um, I think uh, I've got some questions in there towards the end. That um, some of them are some of them are, are reasonably simple. They're just factual things that you can look up, like the management compensation or, or whatever. Um, other things are a little more qualitative. Like I, I kind of, I think it might even be the very mm-hmm. last point on the checklist, but it's basically like, what would Warren do in this situation? Um, so, so. So they're, they're, they're kind of questions where I just sit there and ponder life for a few minutes and, <laughs> and figure out whether whether <laughs> a, a young Warren Buffett would have made that investment or not. So um, that they can be some of the more challenging type questions. So um, um, moving on, Tom, from your checklist, I mean, if, if, uh, if we're going to discuss it all, we're going to take like a few hours. So I, I can just direct people to your YouTube channel to... Um, uh, watch the in-depth uh, explanation of your checklist but uh, moving on i want to ask how do you do your you know portfolio allocation because of course uh, we need to uh, weigh our uh, conviction sizes on every uh, stocks that we own and let's say what's your you know how do you do your bets uh, basically yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question, and I don't know that it's one that I've got a perfect answer for. <laughs> Probably no one's really got a perfect answer for it. Um, I I tend to agree with you know the Buffett principle of you you're better off putting more money in your best idea as opposed to your tenth best idea. So um, that is a philosophy I agree with, but I also recognize at the same time that. Um, unfortunately I'm not Warren Buffett and I'm probably more likely to make mistakes than Warren Buffett. <laughs> so, um, that, that is the way I tend to think about it though. So I, I probably have a mental upper limit of maybe, maybe 20% at cost for an individual stock, but that would be probably pretty rare for me at this point. That would be a, a big kind of allocation. Um, and the sizing on those, on those positions isn't really related to what I think the upside is. It's more related to the downside. So if I feel as though there's mm. a very small chance of a permanent loss of capital, I would be more willing to uh, increase the kind of allocation in, in the portfolio. Um, and that doesn't that doesn't mean that you know I um, I think that a big position of mine will never go negative or anything. It's just that I think the underlying results of the business over time will be strong enough and the price is low enough to where I think that over time a permanent loss is is very unlikely. So um, that that's kind of the way I think about it. The, the other thing that comes to mind is just kind of the opportunity set that's available at any point in time. Um, if I look at the moment, there's actually quite a few things kind of on my radar that are pretty interesting to me. Um, whereas maybe 12 months or so ago, I would have been struggling much more to kind of find interesting stuff to buy. So I think in situations where markets are down, prices are lower, uh, you know, you can get bigger margins of safety and so on. I think I will probably tend to be more diversified than I would be in a time where, where prices are very high. 
but again, at the same time, um, <laughs> Monish Prabhai, for example, has this has this funny saying that um, the mistress always looks hotter than the wife, but in fact, the wife is usually hotter, and, and that basically <laughs> means that if you've got a business, you understand really well. Um, you know, it's it's easy potentially to to get sucked into trying to buy the new interesting idea that you read on Value Investors Club or whatever, and um, you got to kind of slow yourself down a little bit. And there's only so many companies that realistically one human being can actually keep up with and have a have a good uh, in-depth understanding of so in practice for me it probably means i'll never be more concentrated than maybe five positions i guess if i have a 20 percent max at cost um or maybe i'll have less stocks than that if i really can't find anything but i might have some of the portfolio on cash or something kind of on the sidelines and I don't see myself being more diversified than maybe 10 or 12 stocks, something like that. I, I think getting up to that point, um, I, I really like to understand businesses in quite a bit of detail. So I think I would struggle to keep up um, yeah, yeah, if I had more than, more than 10 or 12. Yeah, that's a really concentrated portfolio. I mean, uh, for myself, I only have around, 20 or 25 but yeah i agree with you it's some sometimes it's kind of hard to keep up especially with you know if they're like quarterly earnings and at the same week they they all um you know publish their own uh, quarterly reports it's yeah Yeah, i mean i mean just as an example one of the companies i own um is and have done for for a few years is a business called thor industries which is a um rv wholesaler and um you know, earlier this week mm-hmm. they had an investor day. So I had a kind of long drive um, yesterday afternoon and I sat through like a five hour investor day while I was driving in the car. Um, so it's that type of stuff. Like I like to listen to as much information as I can. I like to um, read industry reports where possible. Um, the main competitor for Thor is a business called Winnebago. So, you know, I listened to the Winnebago conference call earlier, earlier this week. And if I had mm-hmm. 20 of those companies or 50 of those companies there's there's just not enough time in the day to yeah um, to firstly even just take in that amount of information let alone like spend some time just processing it <laughs> you know um so, yeah, so that's yeah. the reason why i i tend towards kind of fewer investments and i'm not super familiar with the statistical data on this and um, there'll be people that are more familiar with it than me but as i understand it statistically speaking if you get past 10 15 stocks the benefits of adding a 16th or 17th stock or 18th stock for for diversification purposes the benefits diminish very very quickly um so i think if you've got yeah if if you've got if you've got 10 or 12 stocks and you're not super concentrated you know all in one industry or something i think you can probably get most of the benefits of diversification with with that basket yeah i highly agree and uh, there's another one that I would like to ask, like if how how about if one of your you know he you said you're like the maximum that you could put in one position is like twenty percent. Uh, what do you usually do if that position happens to grow like two uh, x, you know, three x? It becomes like eighty percent of your portfolio. Yeah, unfortunately, I haven't had the eighty percent of my portfolio problem yet, but I hope that's an issue <laughs> I run into one day. That's a good problem, uh, yeah, actually. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, there's uh, there's a few things that probably come into play there. I think um, if it's a if it's a business that I think I can get a good result from for holding for a very long time, I tend to be more hesitant to sell it. Um, but you know, even the best business at a certain price. Just, it just doesn't make any sense anymore. So um, I would be mm-hmm. open to trimming it or even selling it um, completely if it if it got too expensive. I don't know that I would let the allocation size throw me off too much, at least at this point in time. If and I don't know that I've ever found a stock cheap this cheap, but if it were to four X or something and I thought it was still undervalued. Um, I would probably still hold it hypothetically again in practice is maybe a different thing, but I, I think I would probably still hang on to that. And the reason I say that is because I'm, you know, I'm 27 years old. I'm like six years into my career. So my, my annual savings are still a meaningful contributor to my portfolio each year. It's not like I'm 
managing like tens of millions of dollars and have no other income or something. So um, over time, <laughs> those positions will get naturally diluted down for me anyway. So if something's 20% at cost, you know, a year later, it will be less than 20%, assuming the you know price hasn't changed or whatever. So um, maybe that equation changes in future where my annual savings are kind of less meaningful. I might be more inclined to sell something that ran up a lot, but um yeah, that, that's kind of where my head's at right now anyway. It's a kind of, it's a really hard question actually. And I'm going to ask another kind of hard question again. This is one of, you know, when do you sell? I mean, when do you sell an investment? I mean, we as a value investors, um, we tend to like to hold stocks for forever. So in your case, when do you actually sell? Um, yeah, it's a good question. And again, my my equation is slightly different to maybe a US investor. I've taken a lot of US content. We have um, New Zealand has no um, has no kind of blanket capital gains tax, so um, that makes the benefit of holding these long term compounders and essentially getting like an um, interest free loan from the US government that benefit isn't something that I really have to concern myself with. So um, I would be more inclined to sell something because I don't, I'm not going to have this huge like tax liability if I sell something that's run up a lot. So um, that said, I don't know that that would actually change the equation hugely for me. Um, I, I tend to have two, and, and sometimes there's a little bit of crossover, but I tend to think about most of my investments in one of two baskets, sort of a, uh, a longer term compounder type business where they're reinvesting a lot of their earnings to, to grow um, and sort of like a 50 cent dollar type investment. Maybe I've bought it at a discount to its net asset value or, or um, maybe it's just trading at a really low multiple and it's buying back a lot of stock or something can when the business re-rates, I'd, I'll kind of just get out of it and move on. So uh, there's two different baskets there. With the $0.50 cent dollars, I tend to just exit as soon as we're getting uh, close to or at what I view as conservatively intrinsic value with the kind of compounder type businesses, I'd be more inclined to sell. But at the end of the day, it's really all lot kind of an op- opportunity cost thing. If one of the businesses that I really like that I think could continue to grow just got too expensive and I found something else uh, interesting that was cheaper. I'd probably sell the business that I really liked as much as it would tear at my heartstrings. <laughs> but but again, you have to <laughs> you have to come back to the whole mistress wife thing where um, the yeah. the expected return you can get from a company, it's not a black and white equation. I think a lot of people probably spend too much time in spreadsheets and maybe think that it is that, you know, why would you own something that's you can earn eight percent out of whether there's where there's this thing over here that you can probably earn twelve percent out of. I I don't think you can put a high degree of certainty oftentimes around those expected returns. Um, I think it's the future is a much grayer area than people probably tend to give it credit for. <laughs> they tend to sort of extrapolate, <laughs> you know, recent performance out into the future into infinity and that sort of thing. So for that reason I so, I tend to just um you know, stable stuff I I know well, but um, definitely not opposed to selling. That's a good uh, good answer. Actually, it's really hard. Even if you ask myself, I mean, there are a lot of in the top of my thing uh, head to answer. But yeah, it's it's more of like a personal thing actually. I mean, when when do you sell? Especially if you really invested so much time in studying that kind of business, and then yeah, uh, can I ask what's your you know um. How how do you do your allocations? And let's say uh, we're on the same boat. Like I'm from the Philippines, and you're in the New, New Zealand. And then, of course, we invest on on our country, also country stocks. And of course, we also invest in the US. Like, how do you you know um, balance out your allocation between having a big home country bias and <laughs> being in the US? Yeah, I I tend to just follow where I think the best opportunities are. So um, I probably have like an anti-home country bias in my portfolio at the moment where there's very (laughs) little that's in New Zealand. And um, uh, I tend to think about New Zealand and Australia actually pretty similarly. Um, There's a good number of businesses on the Australian Stock Exchange. Unfortunately, a lot of them are 
commodity businesses and miners and um you know big mm. banks and that sort of thing although i'm getting more interested in banks kind of recently um so i tend to just follow where i think the best opportunity is if it's in new zealand that would actually be ideal we have um, some really nice tax treatment on um on dividends which which you don't have in the u.s so mm. in the u.s you know company pays tax on their earnings they pay a dividend to the shareholders and the shareholders pay tax on that income whereas um, in new zealand when we get those dividends, we get uh, what's called an imputation credit, kind of tax credit attached to that dividend mm. to avoid that double taxation. So in a perfect world, I'd, ha- I've have, I'd have everything in New Zealand just because it's more efficient, um, <laughs> but I haven't found as much interesting stuff here. Like I said, there's, there's just fewer companies, so hunting ground's a little smaller. Now, um, now I want to kind of talk about your worst investing bias. If If you have this kind of, you know, you acknowledge this kind of bias. and What is that uh, investing bias you have? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm sure there's a name for it that I'm, um, that I'm blanking on. But my worst bias is probably getting really interested in a particular stock because someone I really respect has bought it. Um, so you know i see uh, you're not alone yeah, <laughs> yeah i think a lot of people fall victim to that um and i think if you buy a basket of those things and have kind of mechanical rules around it it probably works out all right like that i have a you know a shameless clone of portfolio yeah. series i'm doing on my channel for example that's <laughs> sort of trying to explore that idea um but that would be a big bias of mine that i'm i'm trying to I'm sure there's far worse biases to have, but that's one that I know I know I have. That uh, if if I see, uh, you know, an investor who's 13, if I look at regularly, if I if I see something new show up there, particularly if it's a big investment, um, I'm probably biased towards looking at the um, towards looking at that company more favorably than if I if that investor hadn't bought it. Yeah, it's it's. I I think it's one of the easiest bias to fall into because it, it, these guys that you know the, the super investors that they file thirteen F, they, they they of course they're more smarter than us and and of course they have a whole research team of course uh, behind them. So it's an easy bias to get into. Yeah, and um, I mean some of them are some of them. It's just them, like um. You know, I don't think Manish Pabrai has any analysts, for example, and Buffett yeah. certainly is making his own decisions. But it, it, even then, you can you can fall into that trap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then another one. I mean, this is not in the bias anymore. But I want to I want to ask about how meeting how you met Guy Spear because you know I I also look up uh, at Guy Spear of his Aquamarine Fund and his uh, book. The education of the value investor and can you share your story of meeting guy spear who is like a superstar also in the investing field uh yeah it's an interesting one i um yeah it's pretty weird being able to be, having having talked to guy spear <laughs> a, a few times now it's very cool i feel feel quite privileged to have been able to do that but um yeah, I uh, I don't want to bombard like Guy Spears inbox here, but basically what what happened is um, oh, probably eighteen months or so ago, I, I just sent him some information that I thought he might find interesting on a particular company that I knew he was invested in, and um, I actually sent the the same information to Monish Pabrai as well because I knew um, he had a a holding in the company as well, and I got a short. Uh, so Monish Pabrai must have all his. Um, all his inbounds just printed out by his assistant, I think, and uh, just like scribbles mm-hmm. on them and, and pen every morning. And yeah, gets chicken them, scribbles, gets, he yeah, said. Yeah, gets them like faxed back or whatever, or, you know, scanned and emailed back. So I got one of those replies from owners basically saying, thanks for the info, I have nothing to add. Essentially is what he said. That might not be the exact <laughs> words. Um, and then I heard nothing from Guy for a couple of weeks and then um, just randomly got an email from him saying, um, yeah, I'm happy to talk about it you know, my assistant will figure out a time and uh, had this probably hour and a half Zoom call with him. It wasn't for a video or anything like that. It was just kind of talking about this this um, this company. And um, that was, yeah, the first interaction I had with him. He He's super easy to talk to. Um, so that was, that was very cool. Um, fast forward probably eight, 
eight or ten months maybe um i eventually convinced him to come on a podcast which was great <laughs> so yeah it was great yeah, yeah I, unfortunately i woke up that morning so i think i was recording that podcast at maybe uh i don't know probably eight in the morning or something like that and, and i woke up maybe six thirty in the morning and had this email from um Chantal, who, who's Guy's assistant, saying, you know, Guy's really sick. I'm, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to limit the podcast to 30 minutes. So I was like, I thought my opportunity was basically gone. Um, but uh, full credit to Guy for, for battling through that episode, and he gave me more than 30 minutes, I think. So uh, that, that was very cool. Um, he actually said something in that podcast about – it was relatively philosophical, but he, he was talking about um, – you know, if you get big opportunities to do something in life or go somewhere, you know, money should be no object or something like that. And uh, at the time, I was sort of considering going to the Birch Hathaway meeting in Omaha. Um, but New Zealand um, at that stage had quite restrictive sort of um, COVID rules, basically. So if I did go, I would have had to come back and then spend two weeks in a quarantine hotel before I could get out. And I just basically had ruled, ruled out the possibility of going but um luckily kind of uh, maybe two months before the berkshire meeting um the rules relaxed quite a bit and uh, actually ended up going to omaha traveled with uh, a couple of aussie guys uh, brandon from the new money youtube channel and hamish hotter the three of us kind of met in sydney and then flew to la and then to sleepy little omaha nebraska uh, went to the berkshire meeting <laughs> and um we had tried to film something with guy uh, or, or do a podcast with Guy in Omaha because when he was sick the first time, he said he was actually he was really apologetic, and I was like I was thanking him for still making the effort. But he was really apologetic and said, you know, I'll commit to a second podcast um, when I'm, when I'm feeling better. So I thought, um, how cool would it be to do that podcast in Omaha? Um, and mm -hmm. Guy's schedule when he's over there is just insanely busy. Like he had, um, I think he had a lunch or dinner with um, Debbie, who's uh, Guy Spear, uh, who is Warren Buffett's assistant uh, in Omaha. Um, Guy was actually meant to come to a barbecue that he usually co-hosts with another investor, Matt Peterson, over there. So he couldn't even make it to that. He had a big meetup. He had... Um, uh, like an investor dinner and then uh, you know he's in the Berkshire line at 4 a.m <laughs> you know it's like the one time a year people can just go see him it's, it's very early in the morning in the Berkshire meeting so um, he said can't can't do that I'm really sorry but um, he was really kind and invited me to his like fund investor dinner with um, what he said um, you know wow. it's only aqua marine investors and vips tom and you're invited <laughs> so that was that was awesome got got to have dinner with a few of the aqua marine investors took a photo with guy while i was there and chatted to him a little bit um and then once i was back in new zealand you know a week or so after that uh, we ended up recording the the second podcast episode as well which was i don't know maybe a month ago now something like that yeah it, that that episode was really good i mean I still find it funny that he was not really shocked, but uh, he did not expect you to be tall. <laughs> <laughs> I got that a lot in Omaha, actually. Yeah, I, I think all three of us got it. Um, myself and and Brandon and and Hamish. Maybe maybe there's something in the water down under. I'm not sure that makes us taller, but <laughs> yeah, everyone everyone was surprised how how tall we are. Because I, I yeah, I'm I'm six foot, I think. Hamish is about the same and Brandon I think is like six foot two and me and Brandon are both like <laughs> over 100 you're, kilos I think something like that so um, you're all giants yeah, yeah, apparently. All giants. yeah. <laughs> yeah that was uh, I mean I would I would also love to meet someone I mean I, I don't know if the this uh, saying that never meet your heroes but uh, and how 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 did it feel you know meeting Guy Spear in in person and talking to him did something change or is it is it still the same how you view him um i still view guy really similarly like um yeah guy's not putting on a show or anything when he comes on these podcasts he's very similar in person um yeah there's maybe a few more f-bombs dropped in person when the camera's not on and that sort of thing but aside from that um he you know <laughs> he's he's yeah he's the same person and um yeah, I managed to meet a lot of pretty well-known investors in Omaha, which was was very cool. So, 
yeah, I, I view Guy pretty similarly to before I spoke with him. Um, yeah, the, the thing with meeting some of these people is you do realize that they are just human beings and are um, equally good at making mistakes and things as, as you probably are. So if anything, it probably gave me a little bit of, this probably sounds like me like talking down on Guy. I hope it doesn't. But if anything, it gave me like a lot more confidence that I can invest very well on my own and that, um, you know, both me and Guy could look at similar, look at the same information and come to very similar conclusions, you know, through our analysis and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I, I guess that that's a pretty cool takeaway. <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting. And can you now? I mean, we've been you've been talking about the uh, the Berkshire annual meeting. Can you share the experience there? I mean, I would love to go there, but you know, um, plane the plane tickets from from the Philippines going to the US it's really expensive compared to other countries. But can you share your experience to us uh, on going there for the first time? Yeah, I, I, you might want to compare the. Uh, New Zealand to Omaha flights are pretty pretty expensive too. So, um, <laughs> oh yeah, going to going to Omaha was very cool. Um, we spent we spent about a week there. So, um, what I didn't really appreciate probably before going to Omaha was, um, you know, we of course were going for the Berkshire meeting, and we knew that was going to be a big event. Everyone would, would be lined up early in the morning and all that sort of thing. Um, but I probably didn't appreciate how many surrounding events there would be. Um, so that that was very cool. I think, um, you know, on the first or second day that we were there, we had um, Matthew Peterson's barbecue, which um, I didn't run into him, but apparently Lee Lu's analyst from Himalaya Capital was wandering around there somewhere. Um, and there were there were um, some yeah some very cool people at at um, at that barbecue. Um, obviously, Matt. Um, went along with Brandon and Hamish. Jake Taylor from the Value After Hours podcast was there um, and and lots of other people. So, you know, we had that. We had um, Guy Spear hosted a meet and greet with William Green. Um, we had the, you know, I had, had the Aquamarine dinner one night. We had the um, Berkshire meeting itself. Um, Tom Gaynor's company, Mark Hal, had a brunch the following morning after, um, after the Berkshire meeting. So, um, they put on some great bagels, which thank thanks for that, Tom. <laughs> and anyway, had a Q and A session. You remember the bagels, yeah, yeah. bagels okay. and coffee after a long day at the Berkshire meeting the the day before. Um, so yeah, it was just overall, it was just a great experience, and um, yeah, would highly, highly recommend um, going. I feel like the, there was so much happened that weekend. I've probably forgot some things. Um, the the value after hours guys, um, so um, Toby Carlisle, Jack Taylor, Bill Brewster. They had a like a bit of a get together at a hotel straight across the road from the Berkshire meeting. Um, as soon as it finished, so you know, went and drank a beer with those guys and and some other people that were wow. that were. There was probably a hundred people there or something. It was a reasonably good turnout for Toby just putting a thing up on Twitter saying we're going to be here after the Berkshire meeting. So there was a lot of cool stuff like that. Um, and the interesting thing from our side was, I guess, having YouTube channels. Um, you know, people were coming up and saying hi, which was a pretty surreal experience. <laughs> like, uh, I think um, <laughs> I've run into probably, like I say, I've been doing the YouTube thing for three or four years now. And I think I've been in New Zealand, I've been recognized twice, like ever. Um, and then you go to Omaha and the, the three of us were kind of saying, well, if anyone's going to, rec- if we're going to get recognized anywhere, it's probably at the Berkshire meeting. So <laughs> it'd be interesting to see how this goes. But it was like, yeah way crazier than i thought but it was very cool took photos with a bunch of people and um got to talk to people that watched the channel and and that kind of thing which which was awesome i also love how you know guy spear um kind of described going to the berkshire annual meeting as like a pilgrimage and uh, did it feel like a pilgrimage uh, to you at all or it was kind of funny we we had like a um myself Brandon Hamish had like a running joke that, um, you know, we just keep telling ourselves that guys, this is not a cult. I don't care what anyone says. It's not a cult. <laughs> so that, that was sort of our running joke as, as we were going around, but it, it did feel a little that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, Guy Spear uh, himself said he doesn't care actually if 
is being called a part of a cult. So <laughs> yeah, it's really fun. Yeah, it's pretty strange. I mean, um, yeah, people being pulled together from all corners of the globe. Um, and yeah, it, it, I think it adds about 10% to the population of Omaha for a weekend. It's, it's a pretty serious amount of people. <laughs> I, there's, a, there's a hotel or a couple of hotels kind of right across the road from the venue. And just just out of interest, I, I went and um, tried to just sort of pretended to make a booking for next May, for next year's Berkshire weekend. And it's already sold out. And I think I did that like a week after wow. the Berkshire meeting. So um, wow. yeah, it's, it's, it's so, pretty crazy. So you're planning to go there next year? I don't know if I will. Um, if I lived in the US or something and it was a lot closer, I, I would 100% be there every year. Um, it's very cool. But it's like something like 29 hours of travel or something from New Zealand to get there um, with layovers and, um, you know, a few hour wait in LA and then having to catch another four-hour flight or something to omaha so it's pretty bro- oh, that's it's a, a long pretty long trip, way but um yeah it's, yeah, it's yeah. definitely worth it yeah i i guess you of course you've listened to the the goat himself uh, speaking through the <laughs> the the meeting uh, how how how's the experience you know like sitting there for many hours i, I i'm guessing it's a cramped uh, space also yeah, so we we were in line very early, and there were um, it was a little different this year because you needed to be uh, they had like you know COVID protocols, so people had to um, present sort of proof of vaccination when you when you got on the door. So we were kind of concerned being international that we'd you know I'd be showing them my New mm-hmm. Zealand COVID pass or whatever, and they would just be like, "What the <laughs> hell is this?" Um, but we actually got in reasonably smoothly, and there are a few different entrances kind of around the venue. Um, so yeah we got in there um got a pretty good seat there was like a vip kind of area up the front which is where you know bill gates and jamie diamond and tim cook and all them were sitting and then we were in the um the regular people <laughs> section uh it was it's <laughs> in like a basketball stadium type thing so we were sort of on the floor um and yeah it was it was cool being there it's like a it was sort of like a party like you know before before warren and charlie turn up um like really cool atmosphere <laughs> and um they play they play like a one hour movie type thing before the meeting which um well, which i sort of knew was a thing but i didn't know the details i guess so um that's something that sort of is only there for the people that go to the meeting so a little clip of warren came on at the start and said you know please don't film this this is just for the people that kind of come in person and then um we at, at the start we sort of thought after the first couple of minutes, we were like, this is just going to be back-to-back ads for a bunch of Berkshire companies because they were basically just playing ads. <laughs> and we were like, oh, that, that's pretty funny. Like only Warren Buffett could pull that off and all these people who just love him would, wouldn't even care. Um, but then it got into some, um, you know, like skits of uh, that Warren and Charlie had filmed of Warren, like trying to get into the Berkshire media in the last couple of years when it's been, you know, canned because of the pandemic and some funny stuff like that. So mm-hmm. that was quite cool. And um, yeah, obviously getting to listen to the answers in person was, was good. I think the pace was quite a bit slower this year than it has been in previous years. I don't think they, I think someone counted them up, but they got through something like half of the questions that they usually put. Um, and it's kind of funny because it's it's a reasonably long day, um, particularly... Did you manage to get the question? Uh, did I manage to? No. Yeah. No. I, I don't actually know how that <laughs> works. I think you must have to submit a question um, kind of before the meeting and... I don't know, mm. someone approves it. Apparently Warren and Charlie don't see the questions, but someone approves it, then you get up there and ask. But um, yeah, it's, it was a reasonably long day. And obviously a lot of people, I think we had our alarm set for 3 a.m. because there were not a lot of Ubers in Omaha. So we were worried that we'd really struggle to mm-hmm. like get the you know 10 minute drive or so to the venue. So we got up super early, <laughs> got an Uber. We're probably in line at four, something like that. And um Wow. Yeah, sort of halfway through the Q&A session, there were a lot of people looking pretty sleepy. And there was actually a guy about three seats over that fell asleep next to us. So uh, that was kind of funny as well. <laughs> yeah, I kind of see also that Charlie also kind of sleeps also yeah. halfway through. He was destroying so, that peanut yeah. brittle. I think that, that was keeping him going. He was powering through that. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that's their secret, maybe yeah, for exactly. uh, for long life. I, I, Something on that peanut bread. Yeah, though. we went and bought some. We were chewing on peanut bread which during the meeting as well. It's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know, Warren Buffett always drinking Coca Cola like like it's nothing for ninety <laughs> plus year old. Yeah, it's uh, quite amazing. Like that kind of diet, you know. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Um, I don't know. Maybe all that. Um, maybe all that uh, sort of cognitive energy he's expending reading and and thinking all day maybe that offsets <laughs> the terrible diet i'm not sure <laughs> so in regards to the meeting again um what you know what main idea that you you know get gotten uh, from the meeting itself that you know stuck stuck in your head until you went home in uh, new zealand you know that that's really interesting i've been asked a similar question uh, a couple of times now by just you know, family and friends um, who was sort of like, they sort of had the idea that I'd go over there and I would learn a huge amount about investing. But um, I really came back uh, feeling as though very little to almost nothing had changed in terms of how I think about making investments. I think just because I've read and listened to Buffett and Munger for so long, I you, like and I'm sure you get this as well. Like when someone asks a question, you can probably just about predict what Warren and Charlie are going to say. And occasionally you, you certainly do get new nuggets of wisdom and that sort of thing, or they say something mm -hmm. a slightly different way and it suddenly makes sense to you or whatever. But by and large, um, really not a lot changed in terms of the actual, how I would go about investing money kind of side of things. I think um, what I really got out of it was, um, was just meeting a lot of the people that were there and kind of seeing seeing what it was like in person. I mean, in the in the line for the Berkshire meeting, uh, we were standing right in line with Brett Kelly, who is a CEO of a um, a company called Kelly Partners, which is like an accounting business. Yeah, yeah, in Australia. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, we were kind of just talking business with <laughs> with Brett Kelly for for. I guess at least a couple of hours, probably more than that by, by the time we, we got in there. Wow. And, wow. Um, you know, Brandon was sharing some of the numbers in terms of like, you know, how much um, revenue is YouTube channels generating and all this stuff. And Brett's just like super fired <laughs> up. He's like, Brandon, there's there's no reason you can't make a million dollars a year off that channel and all this stuff. Like, um, and <laughs> yeah, it felt like we, we went away from that and were in the meeting and, you know, getting ready for the movie to start and we're like man we i think we all just got like mbas in those two or three hours with brett that was that was pretty unreal <laughs> so it was more of that type of stuff i think was was the main benefit from going to berkshire i, I was hoping that you recorded your conversation with brett <laughs> no we didn't but well, it must be awesome yeah, i am hoping to get brett on a podcast at, at some point soon so um yeah that that should be fun. nice i'm I look forward to it because I'm also actually studying uh, Kelly Partners now. I, I, I kind of, for me, that doesn't have a finance degree. It's kind of hard to really uh, dig through <laughs> their their financials. But yeah, I'm uh, I'm getting there, and uh, I look forward to having him in your podcast so that I could you know learn more. <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting company. I would, um, yeah, I think it's probably hard to find, um, you know. It's probably hard to find a CEO that has better alignment and thinking, you know, with the Buffett yeah. type, you know, school of thought people than than Brett. Yeah, the, their owner's manual also is really great. It's yeah. like it's like it's like a copycat of uh, Berkshire. Yeah, actually. I, I kind of just <laughs> I kind of just wish less people would talk about KPG, so the price would um, go down a little. <laughs> I just I just can't bring myself to pay up, but I'll probably look dumb in a decade. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. Anyway, um, I have another curious questions. I, I mean, um. I know you talked to it. You talk about this in your, you know, one of your podcast episodes about. Uh, but uh, what are some, you know, personal finance tips that you can give, you know, the listeners? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. I guess. Um, yeah, I'm probably guilty of talking about how to invest money more than how to save it in the first place. <laughs> and I think if you're, uh, if you, well, if you're starting from zero, um, or in the case of a lot of people, you know when I come out of university um, 
at like a negative $40,000 or something net worth because I have a student loan and no money. So, um, you know, when you're at that type of level, um, saving money is going to move the needle far more than if you can earn 13% instead of 11% on your stock portfolio or whatever, right? So um, there were a few things that um, I did and I I guess I'm still doing. um, And they're not particularly complicated tips I would I would say um, a lot of them come from you know Robert Kiyosaki and Rich Dad Poor Dad basic things like pay yourself first so you know uh, for most people working a, a regular job you'll presumably have a relatively stable income where you get paid every week or fortnight or month or whatever um, so just automatically funneling a proportion of that whatever you're comfortable with or in my case as much as I can possibly move (laughs) goes into a separate um savings and investment account so for me uh you know i'm researching stock ideas all the time that cash just accumulates from steadily paying myself um you know every single fortnight and um when i need cash to buy a new stock or something that's kind of where it comes from so that pay yourself first um has worked very well for me i um think people particularly in their 20s have a really good opportunity to just take advantage of the fact that no one particularly cares what your lifestyle looks like like if you're if you're 40 or 50 year 40 (laughs) or 50 years old and you're like living in a flat with five other guys or something you'll probably start to get frowned upon it at some point soon but if you're in your 20s and you're you know got your first job or whatever no one really cares so um me and my girlfriend uh, uh looking to kind of move on from this place at the moment but we've lived in this tiny little one bedroom place uh, for quite a while and that's allowed us to save a pretty high percentage of our income um and i think a lot of people will tend to focus or the personal finance gurus or whatever will focus on you know you're an idiot if you go to starbucks and spend five dollars on a coffee yeah. or whatever but you can move the needle a lot more by getting your you know, getting your rent down by living in a more modest place or whatever. So um, those, I would say, would be the main things that have moved the needle for me. And um, I, the other thing I've done is, is um, you know, typically, particularly if you're coming out of um, some sort of formal education and going into a graduate starting type job, um, your salary will tend to go up at a higher rate than, inflation presumably you know if you're starting in quite mm-hmm, a junior yeah. role and and kind of steadily moving up over time and i think a lot of people when they get those pay rises um there's a strong tendency for people to have a lot of lifestyle creep so if they get paid you know an extra ten thousand dollars they will spend an extra ten thousand dollars or whatever and yeah and that's something that i have worked very hard to resist the urge to do um and a lot of it is by um, like really basic stuff. Like I have this automatic payment that's, you know, pay yourself first type stuff um, every time I I have some income. Um, so if I were to hypothetically get paid an extra $100 every paycheck or whatever, I go into my bank account and modify that automatic payment by $100. So I, I still have the same amount to live on. Like they, it sounds incredibly <laughs> basic, but it's very, very effective and um it also makes um for people particularly people on a steady income it also makes it very simple to set targets so if you want to set an annual savings goal or whatever um you know you can break that down into monthly installments or whatever frequency you get paid on and it should just be going out like clockwork hopefully and and you can kind of work towards those things so um i don't have many like weird tip life hack type things with with personal finance i think it's pretty basic (laughs) but um that's uh that's what i've been trying to stick to Mm. i also want to ask like um if like uh, for example like a friend of yours you know comes to you and asks for um, investing (laughs) tips like what do you what do you you usually suggest to them like do you what kind of resources uh, i mean yeah, I think um, the it's interesting because the question is sometimes framed that way, and sometimes it's framed as "What stock should I buy?" <laughs> and, um, yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I would never really recommend an individual stock to anyone, particularly on the internet. Um, 
you can get in a fair bit of trouble for that. So I avoid that like the plague. And um, even with, um, you know, friends of mine, I I tend to avoid that as much as possible. But I think, um, you know, it's fairly well proven at this point that um, just buying the index over time will give you a much better outcome than the average mutual fund charging 2% management fees or whatever. So I think that's a no-brainer kind of way to go for most people, particularly if you're investing money you don't need for, for several years. Um, so that's um, that's where I tend to push people to kind of learn more about, you know, to, <laughs> to learn about how that would work. Um, and the other thing that, uh, again, this will sound very basic, but the, the thing that clicked for me several years ago when I was first discovering this stuff and that I've seen has clicked for for many other people over time is just getting a very basic compound interest calculator out. Like whether you can download, like mm. I've got a compound interest yeah. calculator app on my phone because I'm a nerd, but, um, you know, you, you can go on websites <laughs> and just Google compound interest calculator. I think there's one called, one called MoneyChimp, which is, you know, really easy to use. And um, just mess around, like plug in 7 or 8% is like a, you know, conservative long run return in the stock market and um just yeah mess around with how long you want to invest for and how much you think you could contribute each week and i found that to be very very motivating to like to yeah. save and and invest more over time so that's something i found works well uh, also yeah it's a powerful uh, motivator actually i also doubled on it like last year i was like oh my god i, I need to start the engine now exactly yeah <laughs> the compounding engine yeah, now. it often surprises people how many zeros are on that final number when, when you put in some fairly <laughs> modest assumptions so yeah i yeah it's really great questions actually uh no uh, great answers that you gave um so before i before i you know go to the end uh, question that I kind of rip off on other podcasts that they ask a guest this uh, question before ending. Uh, where can other people, you know, uh, find you, you know, to 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 look up your work and such? Yeah, sure. So my <clears throat> my main uh, channel is is just investing with Tom on YouTube. Uh, I also have the Investing with Tom podcast, which is on YouTube uh, for the video version as well as all the standard uh, audio only platforms. If people want to check that out. Uh, I'm becoming more active on Twitter, so I'm at Tom Investing on Twitter, um, and uh, I can't reply to everyone. But I, I, you know, if you ask a good question, I, I try to reply to it when I can. <laughs> and uh, the the other one I should mention is I have sort of a joint um, YouTube channel with um, where I'm kind of one of five. Uh, called punch card investing where we basically do weekly mm. live streams so um we've all got our own the five of us have all got our own uh, individual youtube channels um we're all pretty value investing focused and um yeah we do weekly live streams on a particular topic uh we probably get uh ballpark 50 to maybe 100 people or something that come in and watch that live every week and um ask questions and um, you can kind of get our thoughts on the fly and all that sort of thing which is quite fun too so uh punch card investing is the name of that one i will make sure to have those uh links on the show notes so uh, to the question i mean uh, this is kind of still a really cliche actually <laughs> and i'm still uh, on the process of thinking a better question because all the good ones are already been taken 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 off by other <laughs> podcasts like it's this is kind of a rip off from you know from uh, patrick the invest like the best you know from the rational reminder podcast they also do this so my question is uh kind of <laughs> really because i'm kind of ashamed actually but what what is uh, happiness for you what is happiness for me? Um, I, I experienced a bit of it over the weekend, actually, which uh, I, I don't know that I could do it full time, but I really enjoy um, kind of just getting out in nature and relaxing and not having to do much. So I'm um, reasonably into fishing, actually, outside of um, all this investing stuff and the day job. So um, mm -hmm. that's... Uh, not a super philosophical answer to your question that fishing makes me happy, but <laughs> that's one thing. And um, <laughs> yeah. look, I, I, um, I never got into this investing thing to make a 
bunch of money just for the sake of making a bunch of money and I certainly haven't ticked that goal yet anyway really but um uh, the the main thing that um I'm really searching for is just um freedom basically I'm sure that's really what most of us are after um you know as much as I enjoy my job and as much as I do enjoy doing the videos and podcasts and I would do those uh, videos and podcasts and stuff even if I didn't make anything um I would really like to have the freedom to just do what I want to do or, or not do those things if if I didn't have to so um yeah that that's kind of where I want to get to basically it's a really great question. Uh, no, that's a really great that's answer. That's a good question too. On... That's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a tough one. It's kind of really broad. But yeah, you gave a really nice uh, answer. Um, yeah, I mean, and independence is the end goal for most of us. So yeah. So yes, uh, Tom, thank you for, you know, for this lovely uh, <laughs> conversation we have. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope I could get you again in the future yeah for sure this was this was fun and uh yeah i, I appreciate the invite mm-hmm.